What's going on? Welcome to this new episode of the Blue Shoes Fitness Radio Podcast. And today we have another Q&A podcast coming at you. And we are going to be answering, let's see here, 10 different questions that you submitted uh, over the last couple weeks. And uh, now is the time where you get the answers to it. So this is the payoff here. Uh, So like uh, I did in the very first podcast episode, uh, this is a pretty informal Q&A kind of uh, just a coffee table kind of discussion here where we're just talking. Um, uh, somewhat off the cuff and I, I read through all the questions to make sure that I was able to answer all of them and had something um, prepared for you but um, I don't really have any notes here so we're kind of just um, going as if you had come in uh, for a consultation or if you had called up and set up um, like a, a video starting point call or something like that so um, this is just real informal and we're going to get right into it here so um, we got 10 questions and we're going to knock them out so let's start with number one question number one what makes us full uh, the amount of food or the caloric density of the food um, one thing that you'll probably hear me say a few times on this podcast episode here is that's a great question and what makes us full that is a great question um, it's a very simple answer here um, it's the amount of food uh, that you're eating so the caloric density is not going to have a major impact on uh, how full you're feeling so for example if you were to eat um, let's say, uh, you know, 100 calories worth of broccoli versus 100 calories worth of a donut. Um, you may have a few handfuls of broccoli um, and versus maybe half of a donut. And you can already imagine which one's going to fill you up the most. Um, and uh, your stomach is uh, kind of uh, a big balloon of sorts um, where it ha- it's at a certain size, uh, maybe a little bit bigger than your fists. And then uh, it expands and stretches as you fill it up with food. And that expanding process sends uh, your brain a message that says, hey, I'm getting full. Uh, and uh, and a lot of times we don't get that message until we are already over full um, because it's a little bit of a slow signaling process. But um, it is absolutely the amount of food that you're eating. So uh, for those who are trying to diet for the sake of fat loss um, and keeping your calories down, uh, we talk about um, uh, the caloric density of food, but we also talk about nutrient density. And along with that, another uh, related term um, is just the amount of volume. So like high volume foods, um, things that are made up of a lot of air or a lot of water. Uh, so things like vegetables are going to, going to, uh, contribute on kind of both of those. Um, But even things like popcorn, where uh, you're taking in a lot of air as you're eating it, um, there's really not a whole lot of mass to the uh, uh, something like popcorn. Um, And so a lot of those kinds of things are going to fill you up very quickly uh, relative to the amount of calories that you're eating because you're getting in a lot of air into your stomach, which takes up room, um, or a lot of water in your stomach, which again takes up room. Uh, So yeah, to answer that question, what makes us full? It's going to be the amount of food that you're filling up your stomach. All right, question number two. Uh, This one's not really a question here. It's kind of a statement. It's a comment that one of my clients made that I thought would make for a good question. And this person said, I want to be intentional about portion sizes. Um, So to give a little bit of unsolicited advice here, well, I guess it's solicited. You're sitting here listening to the podcast. You know what you're getting into. Um, uh, To give a little bit of solicited advice about portion sizes and about being intentional with that, um, the main thing that you're probably going to want to focus on for the sake of uh, keeping your portion sizes in check uh, is just uh, focusing on consistency and um, 
there are any number of ways of doing that. One of my favorite ways to do that is probably the simplest way. Um, I usually like to combine methods, but the very simplest way that I can picture to keep your portion sizes in control um, is by using the same either uh, plate or using the same uh, like meal prep container uh, for your meals. Um, from day to day, from week to week, uh, even from you know meal to meal, as far as making different recipes or different meals, um, when you're using something that uh, like a meal prep container, and I have I think they're you know 32 ounce containers, uh, and they have three separate compartments. One of them is about 50% of the space, and then the other 50% is divided into uh, two halves. So um, I put protein in one small compartment, my carb in another, and then vegetables kind of fill up the big compartment. Um, but when you use uh, the same meal prep container or even the same size plates at home, uh, you can get a really good idea of your portion sizes simply based on the visual of seeing how much room it takes up in that container or on that plate. Um, that's one great way to, to keep your portion sizes in check. Um, another one, which uh, is another one of my favorites and is not as difficult or as tedious as it sounds, uh, is weighing your food. And whether you, uh, depending on the kind of food that you're making or how uh, proactive you want to be of weighing it before you make it or after you make it or if it's already pre-made um, and maybe in a package you already know how much it weighs. Um, but that's obviously a great way when you talk about portion sizes, we're really talking about the mass of the food itself and weighing it is, that's exactly what you're doing is you're finding the, the weight. <laughs> um, it doesn't get much simpler than that. Um, let's see here. So yeah, so you have the visual, you have the actual, um, weight and mass side of it by weighing it. Um, uh, you can also use uh, other visuals too. So you may have seen charts online where it, uh, you can use your hand as a reference um, to give you an idea of uh, approximations for how many grams of protein might be in a piece of you know lean meat or something like that, or um, what uh, size-wise you know maybe looking at your thumb or the the tip of one of your fingers for um, a portion of fat and how many calories that's going to have. So there are a couple different ways that you can do that. But again, that's just another visual. Um, but being intentional with your portion sizes is uh, definitely one of uh, probably the biggest uh, factors that can make a difference, or one of the factors that can make a big difference in uh, the results that you're seeing. So whether you're trying to eat at maintenance, or if you're trying to eat in a deficit, or if you're trying to even eat in a surplus, uh, making sure that your portion sizes are accurate to whatever it is that you're trying to do um, is going to be one of, the, uh, one of the best ways to keep that all in, uh, in check in terms of your calories. Uh, you don't need to go and get all of these, you know, low calorie, low fat, low carb, whatever versions of um, foods that you love. And then you're choking down, you know, this low carb or low fat mac and cheese and, and you're wondering what you're doing and what you're eating. Um, if you're if you're talking about portion sizes and calories, um, uh, that's probably a good place to start. And then you can start making some cuts and some sacrifices as need be, you know, depending on your goals after that. But um, but yeah, that's a good place to start there. All right. Question number three. I see a lot of fitness people doing squats with the bar on their back. Is there a point to this version or a specific benefit? Okay, so this person is asking about uh, back squats with a barbell. Um, is there a point to this version or a specific benefit? Um, yes and kind of. So is there a point to this version? Um, loading up a barbell on your back that's sitting either directly on top of your shoulders uh, or if you want to get technical you can do what's called a low bar squat where it's sitting um, a little bit lower um, and, and kind of nestled in uh, to your traps along your back. Um, 
That is going to be the best way to load the most weight when you're talking about squats. So a lot of people do squats, uh, you know, doing, you start off with body weight squats. And then when you want to add some weight, maybe you hold a, a single dumbbell or kettlebell in front of your chest uh, in, in something that would be called a goblet squat. Or maybe you have two separate dumbbells up by your shoulders, which kind of replicates a little bit of a front squat. Or maybe you even have, uh, and you'll see this a lot with like a heavy kettlebell where you're holding it down uh, in between your knees and you're squatting down and up. Um, and that's kind of, uh, it kind of replicates uh, like a halfway point between a squat and a deadlift a lot of the times. Um, and that ends up being like a hex bar deadlift is going to do the same movement pattern along that. Um, but uh, when you... Uh, when you get to a point where your legs are able to handle much, much, much more weight than your arms can hold, uh, you can imagine, um, for most people, you could, you could easily, uh, you know, imagine that your, your leg muscles are going to be much bigger than your arm muscles. Um, and if you have extra body fat that's covering up those muscles, there may not be such a huge difference as far as the circumference goes of your thighs and your upper arms. But as far as musculature goes, um, you have a much higher capacity to build a lot more muscle on your legs, which means that if you are doing a version of a squat that's relying on you holding the weight with your arms, uh, you're probably going to run into an issue at some point where you go, okay, now I just have to do more reps, but then your arms still get tired. Uh, so then you switch up arm positions or you drop the weight and now your legs are not getting the benefit of um, you know, the full intensity workout. So uh, doing back squats or even front squats with a barbell, um, while that can be a little bit more challenging technically, um, uh, throwing, excuse me, throwing a bar on your back is, is, uh, is a fairly easy way to really uh, increase the weight that you're using uh, for your squats. Um, simply because you can imagine, you know, if you're able to hold, I don't know, 50 pounds in your arms, uh, you know, either, you know, bear hugging 50 pounds or uh, just holding it up uh, in front of your chest. Um, that could get pretty difficult for a lot of people. But if you take a, a 45 pound barbell and even if you added, you know, two and a half pounds aside to make it that 50 pounds and sat that up on top of your shoulders, um, even more people would be able to do that with greater ease. And so you can load that up pretty significantly. Um, and that's going to be kind of the, uh, the point to that version, I would say, uh, for a lot of people as far as increasing strength, increasing uh, hypertrophy, and building muscle. Um, that's probably going to be your, your best, uh, you know, specific benefit um, and point to doing back squats. Um, if you're not at a point where you are, you know, getting too fatigued uh, by your arms from doing uh, whatever weight that you're using for your squats, um, I would challenge you to consider, to, you know, reconsider that and to look at that and go, okay, am I really working my legs out as hard as I think I am? Or are my arms getting... Uh, you know, most of the benefit for a leg exercise, uh, or primarily a leg exercise. Um, so that would be a, a, you know, a good place to, to look at for that. But um, it can be a little bit challenging to figure out how to do back squats on your own. So if you ever need help with that, um, feel free to reach out to me or heck yeah, reach out to uh, Coach YouTube. Um, there are so many great options and tutorials on there um, of how to get started with back squats, even just with starting with like a PVC pipe or a wooden dowel or something like that. Um, can be a great way to kind of get that positioning down. All right, moving on. Number four, is there a cap to how many calories in a meal our body will immediately use and then the rest store as fat? Um, and this person gave an example of, let's say, that there was a 2,000 calorie meal um, would a certain amount 
provide your body with energy um, and the rest uh, being stored as fat. So is there a cap to how many calories in a meal your, bodies will, your body will immediately use? Um, there is not a cap um, uh, per meal. Um, when you talk about calories and, and how your body functions, there's not really this, uh, this time uh, component to it as far as, you know, we, we tend to categorize things by days or hours. Um, uh, but when it comes to, or, or even when you're talking about your meals, you know, you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, but your body really doesn't, uh, recognize things along that, that time basis like that. Uh, so, and, and that's the whole, you know, uh, carbs after 7 PM or, you know, something like that. Um, there's, there's no, uh, there's no sense to that at all because your body simply doesn't know if it's after seven or before seven or something like that. So, um, so is there a cap to how many calories your body, um, will use? versus how much it stores, um, that is going to be just on a uh, on a, a rolling basis, on an ongoing basis of are you consistently eating more calories than you're burning than any extra calories, no matter whether you have it in one meal or two or ten meals across the day, um, your body is going to store that as fat, anything that's extra. Um, but this does bring up a, a kind of a little bit of a tangent that um, I wanted to walk you through. Uh, let's reposition here. Okay. Um, so, uh, when you're talking about, um, calories and, and overeating specifically, so eating in a surplus, um, where let's say that you know, um, based on calculations that you typically burn about 2000 calories a day, uh, meaning that if you ate about 2000 calories a day, that your weight, uh, would stay right where it's at, uh, pretty much no matter what. Um, uh, beyond that, uh, if you were to eat less than that, you would lose weight. If you were to eat more than that, you would gain weight. Um, and there are some pretty rough calculations that you can do to figure out, um, you know, how many calories you need to burn in order to lose a certain amount of fat. So the number that gets thrown around a lot is you need to burn 3,500 calories in order to burn one pound of fat, um, which means that if you were in a 500 calories uh, deficit across one week, that theoretically 500 calories times seven days, that's your 3,500 right there. So theoretically, if you followed that, um, you would lose a pound of fat uh, a week. Um, and you can imagine that if you d you know do that math and you even double it where people are losing two or three or even four pounds a week, um, that that calorie deficit number adds up very quickly and that most of that weight is probably not just body fat a lot of it's going to be um you know things like body water and stuff like that depending on where you're at in your fitness journey but all of that aside um one of the things that's kind of interesting and uh that i think provides some encouragement for anyone listening to this here um is that let's just say that you know you uh uh you're basal level or not you're not your basal level your total daily en energy expenditure was 2000 calories so that's what you needed for maintenance um let's say that on any given day you know on thanksgiving perhaps that you ate 4000 calories or you know let's stick with that it's it, it, it could go the logic extends beyond that we could extrapolate on that but let's say you ate 4000 calories um that does not inherently mean that those extra 2000 calories are going to be stored as fat uh, one of the things that works um, in our favor is something that's called TEF, T-E-F, and that stands for the thermic effect of food. And you can imagine that eating all those extra calories is going to require extra energy use by your body in order to digest all of that extra food. Um, so your body's going to have to essentially work harder because there's simply more food to digest. 
Um, and so you're not quite going to be gaining 2,000 calories of worth of, you know, body fat, which I can't do that math in my head, but 3,500 calories, that would be what, just a little bit over half a pound of fat, theoretically. Um, that's not quite how it works. Um, and, and again, it, it gets into a little bit more theoretical math that doesn't always play out um, in actuality, but it may be something like, uh, you know, 15 or even 20% of those calories, those extra calories, are going to be used simply in order to digest them. Um, and depending on whether you're eating a lot of protein, carbs, or fats, or a combination of all three. So you can get pretty specific into that math. But the idea here um, is that uh, not only is there not a cap to the amount of calories that you can have in a meal or a day or uh, you know a lifetime, essentially, um, but the fact that all those extra calories that you may be eating on any given day or just on a regular basis, um, not all of it is going to be stored as fat. Some of it is simply just going to be... Uh, you know, burned off in the form of heat um, in, in trying to digest that extra food. So there's some encouragement on that one there, but, um, but yeah. So that's when you see people who uh, do like OMAD, which is uh, one meal a day, and they uh, do one huge, you know, let's say in this case, 2,000 calorie meal per day, and that's just what they eat. Um, uh, that's that's uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, perfectly reasonable. Um if that works with you and your schedule and your goals and things like that too. Or if you want to split it up into, you know, 30 meals a day, I probably wouldn't recommend that, but um, you, you could theoretically do that too. All right, number five. My right arm, which is my dominant side, has an easier time adjusting to higher weights than the left, as well as it's able to do more reps. Is there something that eventually balances out? Also, it feels as though on this, uh, the left arm is getting more toned than the right. Okay, so this uh, this question of uh, of a dominant side of your body and what that means in terms of will it always be bigger or will it uh, you know will the other side catch up and how to do that? Um, there are a couple different ways that you can go about doing this, um, but one of the easier uh, kind of simple ways that you can do this, um, yes, is so your in this case your left side, your non-dominant side can definitely catch up. Um, and one of my favorite ways uh, for my own training uh, and for my clients is uh, to do a variety of bilateral and unilateral exercises. So, for example, let's say uh, uh, if we're talking upper body here, let's just say shoulder press. Uh, no, no, no. Let's let's do biceps curl. That that'll be a much more kind of relatable example here. So let's say that your right arm is bigger and stronger than your left arm on your biceps. Um, I would encourage anyone in that case, if you have a you know a known or visible asymmetry. Um, to do a combination of exercises that are bilateral, so something like a barbell curl where you're using both hands at the same time to lift a weight that's probably greater than the sum of its parts, uh, meaning that if you could curl 20 pounds in your left hand and 20 pounds in your right hand, that you might be able to, with a barbell curl, you might be able to do 50 pounds um, or, or something similar to that where uh, it's um, a little bit more than the sum of both sides. Um, so using a combination of bilateral training like that to where um, your dominant side may be picking up most of the slack, but it's still going to be challenging for your dominant side and especially for your non-dominant side. 
um, as well as a combination of doing unilateral exercises. So with the biceps, if you're doing some curl variations where you're using a dumbbell in one hand and then alternating with the dumbbell in the other, or if you were doing all your reps on one side and then you switched hands and did all your reps on the other side, um, that would give your non-dominant side a chance to really be working harder and to catch up. Um, and one thing that... Um, I've uh, kind of come to realize is that um, it tends to be best to cater to your strongest side um, is is my general recommendation and you'll probably hear different recommendations from different coaches um, but if you're able to lift a certain amount with one side and you're not quite able to get as many reps with the other side uh, that's okay that that non-dominant side will catch up um, the flip side is that if you cater to the weaker side then you're never going to be challenging your uh, stronger side and so if you take that route then you're pretty much just going to be training one side uh, your non-dominant side to uh, you know fatigue or failure or to a certain intensity but your your dominant side really isn't going to get that same benefit um, so that's kind of my general recommendation on something like that is to switch off between exercises that allow your uh, non-dominant side to shine um, and then uh, to do uh, something like bilateral movements where your dominant side can take over a little bit um, to really challenge your other side so that will definitely balance out over time and depending on how big your asymmetry is um, might determine you know how often you train those body parts and things like that too uh, number six how many calories is too low is there a minimum number of calories you should eat uh, there is no set number for this, and, and as you can you know, imagine from how personalized fitness needs to be, I mean, uh, the, the phrase exercise is medicine is, uh, is a very popular phrase in the exercise science world, and it proves to be true on any number of metrics and levels, and when you, when you think about medicine itself, um, you don't just look at you know, one symptom and then prescribe a random medication that addresses that symptom. You have to look at the whole picture, um, even outside of uh, you know, the symptoms that somebody might be experiencing. And that's how, that's how it goes with fitness as a whole, too, um, and nutrition, uh, no less on that side. So uh, with it being so personalized, it's impossible to, to give um, a, a low bar number or on the other end, too, you know, how many calories is too high. Um, that's there are so many factors that go into that um, but is there a minimum number of calories you should eat um, you'll see a lot of uh, people throw around numbers of you know women should not eat less than this amount and men should not eat less than this amount um, and again that's pretty uh, 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 not a very good uh, measure because uh, there's not a, there aren't a whole lot of inherent differences between men and women aside from women tend to just weigh less and be smaller uh, than men and so that just usually means that they are going to need fewer calories overall um, but uh, but as a whole um, you can look at this uh, question as just how you're feeling. Um, are you able to function uh, at full capacity? Is uh, you know are you experiencing a lot of brain fog? Um, are you able to continue to make progress in the gym or at least hold on to maintenance of whatever it is that you're working on? Um, when you start to see a lot of those things um, kind of go down the drain, that's when you're probably in a position where you might not be eating enough. Um, and there's no such thing as starvation mode. Uh, it's uh, at that point, it's just called starving, <laughs> and that is not a good thing. Um, but starvation mode is not uh, a thing, and uh, and that's when you get a lot of people thinking uh, through that lens. 
of looking at how many calories is too low or can you eat so low of calories that you stop losing weight. Um, and that in and of itself could be a whole podcast episode, uh, you know, by on its own. Um, but we won't get into that here. Uh, but yeah, how many calories is too low? Uh, there's not a specific number on that. Um, uh, I'll tell you that. Let's. I'll just give uh, myself as an example here. So my uh, my TDEE, so my maintenance level calories right now, um, is somewhere uh, somewhere in the ballpark of like the low 2000s. So somewhere in like 2100 or maybe even 2200. Um, when I am uh, cutting, when I'm doing um, a calorie deficit, I tend to feel best um, uh, as far as just uh, internally and you know from a progress point of view. Um, I tend to feel best somewhere around 17 or maybe even like 1600 calories, um, which is which is fairly low. Uh, I mean that's a you know six or 700 calorie deficit. Um, and uh, and and that's not something that I keep up for for real long. But uh, some people can go can go much lower. I've had clients um, on lower uh, calorie levels than that. But again, most of them were smaller and lighter than me. And so um, uh, that that's uh, kind of the how many calories is too low. It's kind of a um, a middle range question. That's not really a great place to start. Um, a great place to start is kind of just experimenting on your own. All right. Um, here we go. Uh, I would like to know how metabolism changes with age. So metabolism is, uh, let's just kind of define that here real quick before we get into it, because people uh, throw metabolism around as uh, this uh kind of elusive word but there's there's a pretty a pretty regulated definition on it and and that's basically just the the sum of the energy expenditure of your body as a whole uh, so with that definition in mind metabolism is not just your digestive system it's not just uh, you know anything that has to do with your hormones it's it's everything it's everything in your body your brain uh, using carbohydrates as energy that's part of your metabolism um, but looking at how metabolism changes with age um, it's in in this I hope is an encouragement and not as a you know I hope it just busts some excuses here um, but metabolism does not change inherently as uh, as much as we would like to give it credit for with age. Um, so you get a lot of people who get into their 50s, 60s, 70s, and they talk about how much their metabolism has just tanked. And there are that it, th there is some truth behind that of certain processes in your body do slow down um, as a whole. Uh, and and that can that can lead to uh, you know, all the repercussions of that. Um, and one of those being, and the main one that's relevant here is just that, uh, your body is just going to be burning fewer calories at rest. Um, uh, but not by as much as you would think. And a lot of it is in reversible is probably a little bit of a, a op too optimistic of a buzzword here. Um, but you can counteract a lot of that. Um, and a lot of the times what happens is that as we get older, um, you just feel a little less energetic and you tend not to move as much. And then that's kind of everything slows down because you have kind of decided to slow down. Um, and and along this topic here, when you talk about metabolism, the one main factor that we have, you know, the most control over when it comes to your metabolism and how many calories your body is using and burning um, is the amount of muscle mass that you carry on your body. 
so as you get older, it becomes more difficult to build muscle mass. It becomes a little bit more difficult to keep muscle mass. And over time, you will lose a certain percentage of muscle mass just with age itself. Um, but a lot of that can be uh, uh, can be counteracted um, to a point where it's not going to be any noticeable amount, um, but it will take some effort and some intentionality, and you may not be able to use the exact same strategies that you've always used before. Um, and so when you talk about metabolism changing with age, um, a lot of it is a mindset, and, and it's a matter of making sure that you are... Uh, uh, noticing the signs that your body is giving you as far as um, how things might be slowing down or how you may need to work a little harder or longer or whatever it is at certain things to get similar results. Um, those are the kinds of things to pay attention to as you go uh, rather than, you know, somehow waking up you know, 20, 20 years later and then going, wow, what happened? You know, how did I let myself go? Or, you know, something along those, those lines. Um, that's probably uh, something that just uh, in indicates that it wasn't on your radar uh, this whole time. And so now, wherever you're at, um, as you're listening to this, wherever you're at age-wise, um, there's, there's never a bad point to start paying attention to um, your body itself and to figure out what it responds to best um, and how to best take care of it um, over time. All right, we got three more. Thanks for sticking with us here. Let me get a sip of water real quick. All right, here we go. Uh, when we get hungry, we feel energy drained. When does the body start using fat reserves to supply the body with energy? All right, so uh, looking at this question here, that's a great question, and I'm, I'm very aware that I'm saying that. Uh, that is a great question. So uh, when does the body start using fat reserves to supply the body with energy? Um, so you have a few different energy systems in your body, and without getting into the, uh, the somewhat boring details of it, uh, for the scope of this podcast episode here, um, your body prefers uh, to use carbohydrates as its initial energy source. Um, once you essentially drain your carbohydrate uh, stores uh, in your body from the meals that you've eaten, as well as um, uh, you know any excess carbs are going to be stored uh, in your muscles and liver as glycogen. Um, once that gets depleted, then your body is going going to start using. Um, fat as its energy source and if you get to a extremely level uh, a low level of body fat then uh, your body can start tapping into your actual muscle mass for uh, for energy sources which obviously isn't a good thing um, on on any level but um, when does your body start using fat reserves to supply the body with energy so um, Again, I'm going to answer this, and then uh, let me answer some of the what I think are some of the implications of this question here and why it might not matter so much. Uh, so when you're talking about uh, your body using body fat um, or using fat as, as uh, an energy source, um, uh, for most people, uh, because your body prefers to use carbohydrates first, uh, for most people, if you did, you know, at a, at a moderate to high intensity, and maybe not even high intensity, moderate intensity exercise, something like uh, jogging on a treadmill or, you know, being on a stationary bike, um, somewhere around the 30 to 60 minute mark is probably when your body is going to start uh, uh, preferentially using fat as its main energy source to, to keep up that, that intensity of, of, you know, long duration exercise. Um, but uh, 
and, and that's that's all good and fine, and we know that. Um, but the implications of that, uh, you know, why does that matter uh, for for us when we're exercising? A lot of people have this, and and it kind of makes sense uh, from an initial outlook. But a lot of people have this idea, and this is where things like keto um, come into play, um, or you know, fat burning zone on uh, your uh, your workouts and things like that. A lot of people have this idea that when you are or I should say, in order to burn the most body fat, um, or in order to lose the most body fat, you need to burn body fat. Um, and that is not quite how that works. Um, so if you are burning fat in an exercise, um, so if you are doing, you know, 60 minutes of cardio, at steady state cardio, and you are technically burning fat as your main energy substrate, during that exercise, that is no better than uh, doing shorter, more intense exercise that's going to be burning mostly carbohydrates. Um, and and I, I think we talked about that a little bit in the last podcast episode as well. Um, but this is a topic that comes up a lot, especially in light of certain dietary trends or certain fitness and exercise trends, where it's all about burning fat. And and what we know about weight loss is is pretty concrete. This isn't really up for debate at this point in the the scientific community. But what we know about weight loss is that it comes down to burning more calories than you're eating. And it does not matter if in your exercises or by way of your diet and not eating carbs. It does it does not matter if you are technically burning fat or technically burning carbohydrates. Um, you will probably do a combination of the two no matter what approach you take. Um, so you might as well just do the approach that you enjoy the most. And, and if you're on some kind of a, a timeline or deadline for your goals, of whatever's going to be the fastest and most efficient way to do that. And there are very few cases where, uh, you know, skipping on the carbs or just using the fat burning zone, whatever that means, um, that uh, there are very few cases where that's going to be the most optimal way to do that. Um, all of those kinds of things are very interesting when you're looking at your heart rate, you know, being above 60 or 70% of your heart rate max. And technically, you're, you know, probably burning mostly fat at that point. Um, and, and that's all good and interesting and it has a lot of scientific applications. But for those of us who are simply trying to lose a few pounds or, or build a few pounds of muscle, um, that's probably, uh, again, kind of a middle of the road question where um, that that feels like a good starting point. But there are probably a few steps to, to look at and take before that. All right. Number nine. Ooh, this is uh, this is a great question. Um, I like uh, where this is going here. My Fitness Pal, uh, the app that uh, you can plug in your calories that you're eating and things like that. My Fitness Pal tracks exercise calories, which creates a new calories remaining number. What number should I use? Okay, so if you either have not used My Fitness Pal or if you have used it and you're wondering what we're talking about here, um, My Fitness Pal at the top of the app. Um, it has a, a very simple equation, and um, let me see, actually, I may be able to pull it up here uh, to give you an exact idea of what we're talking about. Let me see here, let me pull this up. Um, it has an equation at the top um, that has to do with your calories remaining for the day. Um, so let's see here, um, if it'll load here. Okay, yeah, so it has your goal calories um, minus your food calories plus your exercise calories, and then that equals your calories remaining. So if your goal is 2,000 calories and you've eaten 2,000 calories, 
Um, and then it says plus exercise. So let's say that it's calculated that you've burned, you know, 500 calories in exercise. Um, that would tell you that you have 500 calories left on uh, a, a food, you know, left uh, to be able to reach just your maintenance or whatever your goal number is. Um, and the question here is, uh, you know, what number should I use? Um, this whole concept is called eating back your calories uh, to where um, it, some people, you know, will walk on a treadmill for an hour and they'll, the, the treadmill says they burn 200 calories and then they go out and they eat a donut and now they're back at zero. Um, and, and there are a couple of issues with that. Um, one of them just being the accuracy of it. And it's the fact that, uh, you know, the machine may tell you or the cardio machine or maybe even your smartwatch may tell you that you've burned a certain number of calories. And those are typically going to be just based off of uh, your heart rate, if it's using that, or just some calculation based on the time that you've been uh, exercising. Or it may have you plug in your height, weight, age, things like that and use a little bit more complex uh, calculations to be able to kind of guesstimate at how many calories you've burned. But there's still a huge margin for error. And so the accuracy level of it, you know, if you think that you burned 200 calories and then you go out and you eat 200 calories, um, you may have not only leveled out, but you may have actually not burned that many calories. And then you are now in a calorie surplus uh, when you think that you've been just fine this whole time. So accuracy is... is uh, one of the big factors on the calories burned side of it. Um, and the other side is probably the more practical one even. A lot of people who, let's just say, and, I, and I've totally done this, um, and maybe you listening, uh, as you're listening, you're thinking, oh, wait, I've totally done this too. Um, where you see that number, uh, you know, 200 calories that you've burned from walking on the treadmill for an hour. And you see that, and you go, oh, okay, so now I have 200 calories that I can eat. And you go home, or you go out to eat, and you guess at what you're eating and think, okay, yeah, this is about 200 calories, so that's perfect, so that evens out and I'm good to go. Um, a lot of times we drastically and chronically and tragically underestimate the amount of calories in the foods that we're eating. Um, and and my, my personal, and if you've listened to me talk for any length of time here, my personal uh, uh, food item that gets me every time, even now, um, is peanut butter. And, uh, and it's very easy to have that mindset where you go, wow, I just went on this huge hike, uh, and you're already guessing, you know, I probably burned 500 calories, so now I can have 500 calories worth of peanut butter. And if you measured out 500 calories worth of peanut butter, um, that's a couple tablespoons worth, and that is, uh, uh, I, I, I regularly eat a lot more than that <laughs> at, at, at once in one sitting. Um, and so it's, it's very easy to lose track on the calories burn side and on the calories inside as well. And so um, I uh, have never once recommended to eat back your calories. So if you're using something like MyFitnessPal or if you're calculating it by hand or whatever it is that you're doing, um, I would say to ignore that number of uh, the exercise calories and just to go with um, your calculation for your goal calories as well as your calculations for how many calories that you've eaten and then using the difference between the two to figure out how many calories you have left for the day. All right, the last question, question number 10. And this will probably be the shortest one here. How do I stop sugar cravings at night? Um, the short answer is you stop giving in to them. <laughs> um, and, and 
and that's maybe a little bit harsh or a little bit direct, but um, if you continue to give in to cravings, uh, it will continue to, uh, those will continue to happen. Um, and this is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but the same idea here. Uh, if you're trying to quit smoking, um, giving in to your cravings uh, for nicotine and for a cigarette, um, giving in to those is probably not the way to stop them. Um, and, and that's... Uh, and and you can look at that in a couple different ways of you know okay so then at that point is the best way to just go cold turkey on it or uh, to reduce your consumption of whether it's cigarettes or sugar or whatever it is um and and that's probably going to be largely dependent on your own personality of what you know is going to be sustainable for you however in my own personal experience and uh, uh in my life as well as training uh clients um it tends to be easiest uh for, for something like sugar, especially at night where um, it's maybe a little bit of a routine where you just think, oh yeah, I had dinner, now I need dessert, um, as opposed to uh, you enjoying a food that just happens to have some sugar in it. Um, it tends to be easiest just to, to not buy the foods that, that you're craving. Um, so if you tend to have you know an entire thing of Oreos every night, or, you know, every Saturday or whatever it is, uh, if you don't buy those Oreos, you can't eat them. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of how that works. Um, and, and I guess that, that makes sense. And that's poking fun a little bit on that, but that's true. That's, that's how that works. If you don't have it, then you can't eat it. Um, but on maybe on the, le to a lesser degree, if it's, uh, if it's a matter of, you know, quantity where you just overeat on something that's very sugary at night or just high calorie in general, it doesn't have to be sugar. Um, you can, uh, if you, if you have the ability to, or self-discipline to be able to eat just a smaller portion, um, then you may feel like, uh, you, you know, were able to fulfill that craving, um, without going overboard. So instead of eating an entire pack of Oreos, uh, maybe you get a like snack pack that's got two Oreos in it and you just open one of those up you eat the two Oreos and then you're good to go. Um, that tends to work for some people as well. I myself, uh, am more on the, the cold Turkey side of things where it's just generally easier to, to get rid of whatever the problem, uh, you know, is in general. Um, but one of the other things that, uh, you know, to, to take a look at the actual craving side of it. Um, so if you stop giving into it, it will go away. Um, and, and depending on your personality and your body, um, when you go, uh, you know, and you repick up those foods or whatever it is, um, you, you may find that, you know, everything kind of just comes right back craving wise, or that you can just simply enjoy one Oreo or two Oreos and, and realize that you're good to go. Um, and, and so depending on where you're at in that, another strategy for kind of getting around this is by replacing um, whatever, you know, food it is that you're having a, a problem with or, or you're having a problem with overeating, um, replacing it with uh, something that might be a little bit of a better alternative and better, not specifically meaning less sugar, but just meaning, you know, less calories or more in line with your goals as a whole. Uh, so for example, um, I've uh, recommended to a lot of clients of uh, eating frozen fruit after dinner or whenever it is that you might normally have dessert. Um, frozen fruit is not only going to be sweet uh, and is going to have a little bit of sugar to be able to help curb that craving a little bit. Um, it's uh, 
it's interesting uh, as far as rather than eating like a sugar-free version of something uh, that tends to be maybe a little bit bland or boring or kind of chalky. Um, eating something like frozen fruit, it's cold, it's frozen, it's got a great texture. Um, and so I, we have a four or five pound bag of frozen strawberries in the freezer and I eat, you know, five or six strawberries a night after dinner. And that's my, that's my own dessert and it's perfect and it, and it you know, gets the job done. Um, or, uh, uh, what was the other thing? Um, even something like, uh, talking, going back to the very first, uh, couple questions here, talking about high volume food. Um, even something like whipped cream or frozen whipped cream is one of my favorite desserts of all time. You can throw some fruit on it or whatever. Um, it's going to have a lot less, uh, a lot fewer calories than the equivalent, you know, size of ice cream. Um, a lot of it's going to be just air, um, but it's still sweet. It's still good. It's still milky and creamy, and you can throw some fruit on it and some toppings and you're good to go. Um, but anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent on that. But um, how do you stop sugar cravings at night? Um, there's, you know, like I said, there's a couple different ways of either uh, stop giving into them or uh, or have a few parameters set up around them um, are probably going to be some of the best ways to do that. Um, one one final thought on that question there. Um, sugar cravings themselves may not be the actual problem. Um, you may need to kind of look at, uh, uh, like I said, you know, maybe uh, some of those things are routine-based or habit-based, and you're trying to figure out, um, you're really trying to get to the root of how do I work on changing some of my, my you know, post-dinner uh, food habits, things like that. So that might be a good place to look um, on that as well. All right, everyone, we made it. 45 minutes in and we made it. So that is uh, today's Q&A and I hope that you got a lot out of it and that you enjoyed this uh, podcast. I'm still having a ton of fun putting these together and I hope to be doing them on a more regular basis too. Um, I just looked and my last episode was uh, like what would it be like two months ago, almost till the day, uh, which is crazy because I love doing this. I love talking. You already know that. But um, but yeah, so if you have any additional or follow-up questions on this podcast or anything that we talked about today, or if you have any questions that you want to see answered and addressed in future podcast episodes, um, you can uh, reply or leave a comment to anywhere that you see this posted. And, uh, and we can go from there. But I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. I hope that whatever it is that you were doing while you were listening, whether you're relaxing at home or on your way to or from work, or maybe you were cleaning around the house, I hope that you had a great time and a productive time and that you learned a thing or two. So anyway, I still don't have a official sign-off uh, like message or slogan or song or anything like that. So we're just going to end it right here. And I hope you have an awesome rest of your day.